Section 29 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. Volume 3, Chapter 2. The Seal of the Dead. Left to himself and his own devices and reflections in the Westbourne Grove Hotel, where he took up his temporary abode, and perhaps left above all to the inspiring influences of his twenty-cent weed, which seemed to be ever between his teeth, it took Colonel Vandermeulen, who while he was awake his mind was ever alert, not many hours to recast, remould, and mature his plans. With the acumen of a man with the faculty born of probing to their depths the well-springs of human actions, human motives, and human affairs, in their most complicated entanglements, he had reviewed, now surely with different eyes, all the facts of this mysterious case, a case in the which he seemed to unravel, to eliminate, to divide the unreal from the real, seemed to sift, like wheat from chaff, the genuine from the sham, with that unerring sagacity which had placed his name and reputation in the work of his chosen calling on the pinnacle of eminence upon which it stood. It was only on the day following the arrival in town from Vernwood, the day following the committal to their place of final earthly rest of the remains of the late Bertram Ganneau, that Colonel Vandermeulen waited on the great conveyancer, Mr. Lumley, at his office, which we have so often had to mention, near Lincoln's Inn Fields. Although, rather strangely, not much discussion had been entered into at Vernwood as to the fact it was patent that the late Bertram Ganneau had not only been mercilessly murdered, bereft of life, but that his corpse had actually and ruthlessly at some time or other even been stolen from its resting-place in the very grave. At what time this last act of desecration had been committed on the murdered man's remains, for how long or for how short a time the body had been suffered to rest undisturbed even in his temporary grave, nor how long it had lain hidden beneath the autumn leaves and debris of the forest gorge, there was hardly a shred of evidence definitely to prove. All this there was nothing to show. It might not have been allowed to lay for twenty-four hours in its legitimate grave. None, as far as the outward world knew, none could tell. But we can acknowledge the workings of an unseen power in all things, and probably had not the latent sagacity of the dog-monk, with an instinct more powerful than human intelligence, been led to the discovery of the remains, as far as man's wisdom could lead him, the body might have been forever lost, and the sin been one other added to the category of undiscovered crimes. But that was not to be. Such is not the way of heaven in its dealings with those who have stained their hands with human blood. It was some time during the day following that the American detective called on Mr. Lumley, and the two men entered into a somewhat more exhaustive discussion of the circumstances of the theft of Bertram Ganneau's body from the grave, and as well also of his previous violent death, for of course Colonel Vandermeulen could now no longer have a doubt left upon his suspicious and incredulous mind that the true Bertram Ganneau was dead, and although probably he did not tell Mr. Lumley all he thought, 
the New York private detective had a shrewd suspicion that although there might be enigmas in it which he could not yet fathom fully, yet on the whole he saw through all the semi-opaque waters of doubt and mystery, and could discern more clearly the profounder depths and motives of the crime. The one thing which seemed to exercise Colonel Vandermeulen's mind was the mysterious circumstance of, and especially the mysterious disappearance of the sapphire ring, for, as articles of value have a tendency to do, it had by some mystic agency vanished out of sight. The ring, as we have indicated in an earlier part of this story, was comprised of a large translucent unclouded sapphire cut into an oblong shape and embedded in a massive setting of yellow gold, a rare stone of the true deep velvety sapphire hue, of high intrinsic value, and had ever, in the eyes of Bertram Gonneau and his father before him, been an object of considerable family and historic worth, as a family relic which he had drawn from his father's hand when after the engagement of Five Forks, the last battle of the American Civil War, his father Hubert Gonneau lay dying or dead. It was, as we have shown, before the eyes of his mind, that dead white hand which had been the ruling delusion of Bertram Gonneau's life seemed ever to appear. It had been ever the vision of his delirium when on the couch of sickness, or when the hand of death seemed near, when by reason of the excesses into which he sometimes plunged, among the wild, fantastic, hellish shapes which haunted his disordered brain, there ever stood out in strange relief the same strange vision of that dead white hand. On the tabular facet of the precious gem were engraved the family arms and quarterings, not excluding from the heraldic device, that which the late Bertram Gonneau would have given much if he could have seen eliminated from the shield, that hated blot and stain and eyesore on his escutcheon, the hated sinister bar telling of illegitimacy back in some remote generation of his race, a race of unblemished honor, and as the world counts taint, of untainted name. Such, shortly then, was the object which, although he had never set his eyes upon the precious bauble, seemed to attract its very full share of Colonel Vandermeulen's consideration, almost, we may say, his affectionate regard. Yes, Mr. Lumley said he had seen it, knew it, and had seen it hundreds of times on the then-living owner's finger, for the late Bertram Gonneau seemed to hold it as one of the treasures, one of the fascinations of the reckless years of his life, and now, when forever he had gazed the last long-sorrowing gaze upon that poor face, then for the first time it occurred to Mr. Lumley that the precious heirloom, as if by some mysterious unseen agency, had disappeared. Certain he was that it had been worn when, on that fatal night, with ruthless, murderous hand, the assassin had cut off Bertram Gonneau's life. He had observed that, with a ghastly, a sickening and misplaced and ignorant show of pride, it had, by those who attended to the late Bertram Gonneau's obsequies, been displayed an unbecoming show of human utter littleness and earthly greatness when the dead rested in state, and in the confusion of all the surroundings of that dread time and deed. 
although Mr. Lumley now felt certain it must have been ignorantly buried with the body of the dead, the ring, in the pressure of his other affairs, had, until he saw the recovered body lying in the chapel of the mausoleum, passed entirely from his mind. And now for an intimate acquaintance with that valued jewel and its heraldic device, Colonel Vandermeulen felt that, as he expressed himself to the London lawyer, verily he would have given his left hand. But this anxious desire of the New York detective, Mr. Lumley, after some search among those piles and bundles and boxes of dusty documents relating to the broad acres of his aristocratic clientele, discovered that he was able to satisfy and willing to afford, without the sacrifice, on Vander Mullen's part, of that valuable member of his society, namely, Colonel Vander Mullen's very useful palm, for after some search among those time-honored documents relating to past indiscretions, past wants, past needs, and past deeds, the lawyer was able to produce, very much to the colonel's satisfaction indeed, some admirable impressions in wax of the signet ring of the late Bertram Ganot, and these wax impressions Colonel Vandermeulen stowed away in some very safe part of his personal attire, with as much care as he would had they been veritable greenbacks or gold. And perhaps, manipulated with that skill which he could apply, they were as good as greenbacks or gold in the detective's hands. And so without much further parley, for like many very able men, Colonel Vandermeulen was not a man given to a superfluous redundancy of words, and he felt that, for that day at least, he had learned as much as he wanted to know, the interview, wherein the New Yorker received assurance that, attached to the elucidation of the whole mystery which hung around the Vernwood tragedy, there was no insignificant reward, came to an end, and from Mr. Lumley's sanctum, Colonel Vandermeulen again withdrew. Then, very suddenly, rather mysteriously, rather strangely, rather queerly, Mrs. Chickett's thought, the perfect gentleman, her lodger, Captain West, the splendid dream of her existence, had vanished, and her eyes rested on the glorious personality of Captain West no more. A polite message, by a polite messenger, arrived at Mrs. Chickett's house, walked across the desert of Sahara up to that lady's front door, and on Captain West's behalf, honorably, and even in a liberal, even in a very generous spirit, discharged all demands, and drove away with all the impressive array of Captain West's empty boxes and belongings in a cab. And thus ended this pleasant passing vision of Mrs. Chickett's life, the vision of which that vain woman, with the blighted life, probably retained a vivid recollection, not to poor Chicket's advantage, to the end of his days. But that which seemed more remarkable even than the sudden termination of Captain West's tenancy of Mrs. Chicket's front rooms, was the quite new departure which it entered into the mysterious head of Colonel Vandermeulen to conceive for with that marvellous power of adaptability to all the circumstances of any phase of life, Colonel Vandermeulen had suddenly taken to the profession, a profession which, like other subtle arts, is supposed to take a lifetime or years to master, the profession of the stage, Colonel Vandermeulen became a professor of the histrionic art. 
not in its highest phases, it is true, not in the highest, most soaring flights or representation did he venture, nor in the most difficult parts did the New York detective assume the accomplishments of a new role. But doubtless it was his wondrous power of being all in all, of playing all the world's many parts, of playing them as it were by intuition, without all the laborious preliminaries of rehearsal and repetition which renders the life of the professors of the dramatic and the histrionic art a life of hard, incessant toil and grind, perhaps it was this faculty, added to the many other useful gifts with which Colonel Vandermeulen was endowed, which had made him that which we have described him in the earlier pages of, and throughout this history, the most consummately skillful player of his part, the most devoutedly dreaded among the peccant community of New York world. Perhaps they dreaded and feared this wily man-hunter, because, like the harmless prey of the jungle, they were deceived as the leopard deceives his prey, by allowing its spots to simulate leafy shadows of the trees. With that ready art and ready adaptation which in him lay, under the theatrical name of Mr. Wedmore Summers, passing himself off as from some provincial English theatre, but recently landed from an engagement in the United States, our wily friend Vandermeulen thus launched himself into the life of this new role, for like as in Hamlet a play is played within a play, and as a stage is placed upon a stage, so Colonel Vandermeulen was playing a part within a part. He was not only one of life's actors, simulating the actor's part, but he was the simulated actor taking the real actor's part upon the stage. But except once in a minor and unimportant character, the prudence of that doubly clever player, Wedmore Summers, forbade his posturing behind the footlights of any other than some fifth or sixth-rate metropolitan theatre, where audiences were less critical as they were less exacting and less refined. He knew his game too well for that. This part, however, of the New York detective's role we will not pursue. But there was one fellow actor with whom Mr. Wedmore Summers became on very chummish and friendly terms. The two men acted together, they drank together, they caroused together. That is, as far as Wedmore Summers ever committed himself to anything of the nature of a carousal at all. But there was one thing which Wedmore Summers knew, and which his boon companion, who was known as Lawrence Houghton, did not know. Wedmore Summers, or as we know him, Heinrich Vandermeulen, knew that in the great game of life, we may say almost the game of life or death, which these two men were playing, Wedmore Summers knew well that both were playing a double part. And with so astute a player as Wedmore Summers, and playing for such heavy stakes, Lawrence Houghton was bound to lose. End of section 29